In the name of God, Almighty One, Suffering Servant, Spirit infusing the creation. Amen. Driving west from Casper, Wyoming, the highway goes straight. The landscape is semi-desert and dotted with sagebrush. Far off at the horizon, a range of mountains beckons. But somewhere in the middle of this monotony is the most extraordinary sight. It is a bowl created out of the ground, perhaps half a mile across and a quarter of a mile deep. From its floor, very colored stalagmite shapes, like sharp teeth, rise to great heights. And undulating stonework, backs of great stone snakes from the shape of it, rest at the base of the bowl. It is quite unnerving to have been driving across this flat and unvaried landscape to discover, thanks to a tottering sign which alerted us to something worth seeing, towards such an uncanny sight. Fences kept you from venturing down into this desert of stone, and that was just as well, for the stone was porous and dangerous. And who knew how many snakes and scorpions lay expectant under the shade of stones? Reading this passage from Exodus set for this Sunday brought this back to mind. For Moses, wending his way along the coast of the Sinai, tending the flocks of his father-in-law Jethro, with the sea to his west and a range of forbidding mountains rising eastwardly, must have wearied of the heat, the sand, and the monotony of the landscape through which he was passing. And then he saw the most extraordinary thing, a bush burning, although there had been no lightning strike, and from the bush the sound of a voice. It was like nothing he'd ever heard from a human being, which spoke to him and called his name. Now, we have no way of knowing what Moses' religious life was like, but seeing as he'd grown up in the court of the Pharaoh and had an Egyptian name, whatever consciousness that he was a Hebrew had no doubt been diluted by years of witnessing religious services in the temples to whatever gods were favored by the reigning ruler. And like most people, perhaps, his religious sensitivity was conventional and unreflected upon. But when the voice from the burning bush caught Moses' attention, it was as if a chasm had opened up in him. And from the depths of this chasm, the voice of the living God calling his name. And at the same time, 
Moses had a sense of his littleness and insignificance which led him to remove his sandals in the presence of the mysterious bush and the voice which spoke out of it. Whatever commonplaces Moses had been accustomed to using in his worship and prayer now seemed totally inadequate. There was no avoiding the fact that he'd heard from a being greater and more awesome than he could have imagined or comprehended. And this was confirmed when Moses asked whose voice it was. I am who I am. I will be who I will be, was what he was told. No name, no discreet being. There was no apparent limit to the voice's nature. I will be who I will be. This was no deity like the ones Moses knew in Egypt that you could fashion into a statue and say, here is the God. We need to be reminded of Moses' experience frequently because it's so easy to become comfortable with God, to make God friendly, close to hand, why almost cuddle-worthy. To experience that, though, is not to experience God. It's what we'd like God to be. But to experience God is to discover a being altogether different. Why, it's the difference between looking at the sky at night and almost imagining we can conceive of the length and breadth of the firmament and the view the Hubble telescope offers us of a universe unimaginably deep, fearfully vast, with gases rising light years high, nameless clusters of stars, galaxies receding into the depths of space in unending succession, a constellation seen by us in its infancy 13 billion years later. To talk of God is to imagine a being encompassing all this vastness, giving it a shape and imposing on it an order too complex for us to conceive or comprehend. I think we need constantly to be reminded of a book that came out in 1952, whose title has never ceased to offer us a warning. Your God is too small. Now, it isn't only in our prayer life that a chasm offers, opens, and we're faced with the judgment of the living God. Chasms open in our social and political life as well. I remember in my youth, during the Cold War, how much we heard of the tenets of democracy and how vital preserving them was. The dread of autocracies and of evil leaders was constant. By the time I was a little boy, the atrocities of Nazi Germany had become known to all, and the terrors Stalin inflicted on his people came to our attention bit by bit. 
Why, by the third grade, I and everyone else in my class knew how to spell democracy. But by the time I was a young man, my youthful enthusiasm for democracy had given away to a flirtation with other forms of government, other ways of shaping societies, quite different from what I'd grown up to believe. I remember the first time I read the Communist Manifesto, being filled with religious fervor, thinking it proclaimed a new order of society. And during the 1960s, it had become clear that there was a great gulf fixed between the fruits of democracy I'd been taught and enjoyed and how little African Americans and native peoples partook of it. And to judge by recent politics, why it would seem that no longer is it enough simply to flirt with forms of government inimical to the democracy we were founded upon, it was time now to sleep with the enemy. Into the midst of this miasma of perverted affections and confused attractions, the courage, the strength, the indomitable spirit of the Ukrainians rising up against their neighboring country and its despicable leader, whom too many in this country had found unaccountably attractive, has shaken us, like the voice in the burning bush had shaken Moses out of our troubled and nightmare-filled sleep to remind us of what we were born to stand for and who we really are. And we cheer the Ukrainians and are even willing to let the gas prices, prices rise on their behalf because they are a mirror revealing what our better nature is and what we'd like to be again. But Moses' experience there before the burning bush has its comparison to life in a church as well. And I don't want to talk about churches in general, but of All Souls Cathedral quite specifically. We are coming through a crisis that is twofold, a crisis born of the loss of several clergy and the desert of loneliness, stress, and anxiety this pandemic has dragged us all through. We are slowly emerging from it, and we must. For if psychiatrists are now suggesting that a grief which lasts in an intense state for a year or more could be the sign of serious mental distress, it must be a matter of concern should a church lack the resilience to emerge from a crisis after a period of time and be able to see things in a new way, as Noah did when he opened the window of the ark and beheld a new world below him drying out and glistening in the sun. We have had a chasm open up within us these past couple of years. It has shaken the foundations of our community and our sense of comfort and security. How we yearn 
to shed our masks and see each other again. How we want things to be what they once were. A couple of weeks ago, Will and I went to a quiet day offered by, to the clergy by Bishop Jose. There were two speakers. One was a professor who taught in the School of Public Health at the University of South Carolina. The other was the Bishop of Western Pennsylvania. The brunt of what they both said was a cautionary tale for us here at All Souls and for any other church as well. There is a break in church life that COVID has caused. We must go forward, yes, but we can't go forward by imagining we can go back. Our communal life will not be what it once was. Those days are gone. And wistfully to compare our life in this new austerity with the abundance we now see the past to have had is to bury our head in the sand. The new that's emerging is not the old returning, but a new new, to mimic the way a one-time Secretary of Defense was fond of talking. The robustness of life of the church we now imagine having had will be replaced by a life that may be quite different. The one thing the past and the future have in common is the presence and the governance of God. And the only thing that can slow up God's working in and with us is for us to be so nostalgic about the past that we can't see the new shape of things emerging. We're looking for the arrival of a new dean. And one of the things she or he will have to work creatively with us on is the discovery and creation of a new shape to our common life. But we don't need to worry about it because God knows that's what we need. And what we need, we will be given. Just as in the prophecy of Isaiah, who observing the blasted summer sun withering the desert and its plants and trees saw what God could do, how the parched land would become glad again and the desert burst into flower, how fields of asphodel would bloom where there'd only been dryness. And Isaiah saw more than that how during the years of war and turmoil, he saw how those whose arms were limp, whose knees were weak, those fro frozen by anxiety and fear, heard the good news that God would come to save them and that there would be gladness and joy again. Suffering and weariness will flee away. And as it happened in the desert, so it will happen with God's grace to us here as well. But we must be alert to wait for it and not, like the foolish virgins, be asleep when it arrives. Amen. <laughs>